Because it's an endocrine organ, and what that means is it releases hormones. So it's very much like your adrenal gland or your pituitary gland or thyroid gland. Fat is a gland. It releases a number of hormones that our body depends on. So fat's doing a number of things, not just storing calories. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sylvia Terra, who holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California and an MBA from a little school known as the Wharton School of Business. She was also a consultant with McKinsey, and she's worked at the world's largest biotech companies, but she's here today to talk about a book that was absolutely fascinating for me. I can't wait to share it with you. And that is called The Secret Life of Fat. Hey, Dr. Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. What is the story? Your PhD followed by an MBA? Tell me that story. <laughs> so I always loved science and I, I you know, wanted to, to research it and know more about the human body. And I remember an advisor gave me this, this advice as I was in my program saying, unless you have a really big burning question, don't go into research. It's not worth it. It's low pay. It's struggle. There's uncertainty. And you won't get through unless you really have a strong question. And I have to admit, at the time, you know, my 20s back then, I didn't have a really strong burning question. So I wanted to uh, focus more on the macro parts of science, the business parts of science. And so, of course, being someone who always needs to know exactly what I'm doing, I went off and got an MBA as well so I could be prepared for business. So I made that transition. And what's funny is that I didn't start having that strong burning question about anything until I decided to lose fat. And that's when I started really wondering, why is my fat different? Why do I have a harder time losing it than anybody else? You know, why are some diets working and some not? And why do I have to work harder at it? And it was such a hard burning question. I almost went back, you know, into research in a way. I went back to study fat, dedicated about five years to just reading every article in the scientific literature I could find. I spoke to over 50 thought leaders in the field about fat. And then what I was learning was so astounding that I decided to write a book about fat, The Secret Life of Fat. And so uh, that is the book, and it's got all kinds of interesting things about fat that nobody ever knew. It does. We're talking about body fat today, not dietary fat, thus underscoring my supposition, Dr. Tara, that these should be called different things. We are not talking about the fat that you eat. We're talking about the fat on your body. And this is a question, a mystery that started in your life, it sounds like, in adolescence. And you said you went on your first diet at age 12. Why on earth? Tell us what your childhood experience was like. Yeah, so I got, I have a propensity to gain weight. So I gain it extremely easily. And when I was 12, it started to show. I started to get a, a belly. You know, I started to get a little bit of a butt. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go on a diet. And all these things in books and good housekeeping, whatever I had access to, and even the, the food guidelines, it, it's to eat plentiful, eat three meals a day. And they show you these big pictures of, of, of meals and all these foods you're supposed to be eating. I would gain weight on these things. And so even at 12, I had to be steadfast. I had to reduce my calories more. I had to exercise more. And even then, with all the earnest intensity of the world, I could lose about a pound a week. 
And it was hard. And my friends could always eat more. You know, it was, we were teens. We were young. They were eating summer candy, ice cream, whatever. It was really skinny. So I noticed from the very beginning that I gain weight easily and we're not all the same and kind of struggled throughout my adolescence uh, on this yo-yo of dieting, you know, from early on. And so, uh, you know, that was my start. So I've been at it for decades dieting. And uh, it wasn't until now until I did all this research that I finally understand why I'm different, why everybody's different, and the special things people have to do to individualize. Dr. Tara describes in her book how she began this journey, as you said, at age 12 with your first diet. But then you did the whole trainer thing and the exercise two hours a day thing and still continued to not get the results that you want. And I love that it drove you to this place where you applied your profession and your purpose into this area, this sort of commonality, this universal issue, if you will, that so many of us, you know, brings so many of us together. Your book is called The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You. I mean, you had me with the cover, Dr. Tara, because I'm like, fat is an organ? What? (laughs) (laughs) I've never, ever thought about it like that. Had you before you wrote the book? Not at all. I thought of fat like everyone thinks about it. It's ugly blubber. You know, it's it's rippling on my body. I have to get rid of it at all costs. The thinner you are, the better it is for your health. And, you know, any extra amount of fat at all is unhealthy for you. So when I started really trying to read what is fat and why is my fat acting so weird, <laughs> that's when I learned that, you know, it's not just fat. It's, it's a remarkable organ, as a matter of fact. And that's why nature wants to protect it. So although we want to lose weight, we don't value fat nature does and it wants to keep it on us and unless you really understand the intricacies of fat if you have stubborn fat you're not going to understand what to do so knowledge is power in this case it certainly was for me once i understood it i could reject every diet of the day that comes out all the time i mean how many different fads are there out there and unless you're educated you're really gullible to follow this diet or that diet And what they all say is that, oh, losing weight is easy. Just follow my one, two, three step plan and just buy my book and just buy my nutraceuticals and just buy my things. And, you know, we're getting taken for a ride. And once you, you know, really educate yourself, you see that this, this, you know, if these aren't working for you, you'll start to understand why fat is this wily organ that is designed to come back as much as we tried to lose it. It can control our appetite, our minds, our preoccupation with food, our metabolism, responses to images of food is it's really quite amazing in a way you know it controls you just like your dna can control you and so it was astounding to me and so you know I, i had to write it all down and share it and hopefully it's done some good for people yeah what i love about this is that it's absolutely not a diet book it's a data book and it tells the story that honestly i think helps the people who are curious understand kind of what they're dealing with and and frankly gives us a new lens with which to view it so you actually say that fat is I'm I'm going to quote you from your book. You say, it is a dynamic and interactive endocrine organ that has life or death influence over us. I mean, that's a big statement. We'll talk about the hormonal connection in a minute, but that's a big statement. But you explain that it's absolutely critical to so many of our physiological functions, right? Our biological functions. That's right. So because it's an endocrine organ, and what that means is it releases hormones. So it's very much like your adrenal gland or your pituitary gland or thyroid gland. Fat is a gland. It releases a number of hormones that our body depends on. All different organs and tissues in our body depend on fats 
hormones. So our reproductive system is linked to fat. When women lose too much fat, they don't menstruate regularly. And there's a problem with this really with athletes and ballerinas and people with anorexia nervosa, eating disorders. If you get too low of fat, you stop your period. And, uh, you know, it's funny because there's a, a scientist, uh, Rose Frischer, right about in the book, and she stumbled upon this. She was doing work um, looking at world populations and the needs for food around the world so that, you know, countries could plan for, for economic growth and population growth. And she found that in Pakistan, girls in poor neighborhoods were menstruating later than girls in rich neighborhoods. And uh, she couldn't figure out why. And, and she started looking at uh, different factors of it. What was it about their body? Was it their height? Was it, you know, their, their weight? Or was it any, anything else? And it got down to exactly it was the amount of fat that they had. And so girls in the well-to-do neighborhoods, of course, had a little bit more fat than girls who were poor. And they were menstruating on time regularly. And the, the poor girls were. And finally, this translated to, to fat everywhere. And she noticed that you could turn periods on with about two pounds only oh so a ballerina word. yeah it's really surprising so so ballerinas who exercise very hard and, and are very are very thin if they injured themselves and they had to you know sit on the bench for a while say out of dancing they would become normal they would get their periods back because they, they weren't burning calories and, and eating so little and it would only take a couple pounds to, to shift it on or off so very important for our reproductive uh, system. You know, it's important for our bones. Teenage girls need fat. Uh, their bones become thinner if they don't get enough fat. Brain size is even linked to fat. Um, again, people with anorexia nervosa, they start to lose volume in, in their brains. And it's not just low fat that's an issue. Defective fat is something, too. There, there are genetic defects where people aren't producing. Their fat's not producing the hormones it's supposed to. And they also have issues. They can have lower brain volume. Um, they can have issues with their bones, with the reproductive systems, clearly. So so fat's doing a number of things, not just storing calories. Yeah, I thought it was, even that part was fascinating when you tell us that body fat allows us to actually absorb the energy from food now and retrieve it later. When you think about how it, it's actually critical to your survival in this way, it gives you like a new lens to view it with and a tiny bit of respect for it. But I don't know if you can relate to this. That doesn't mean I still want a bunch of it. <laughs> No, you, you need like a healthy amount of fat. Like on either end of the spectrum, too fat or too right. thin isn't good. So you need you need to keep it healthy like you do for your colon, your heart, your lungs. We have all these campaigns for these different parts of our body. We don't have one for fat because people just think of it as something I have to get rid of at all costs. And I actually write an interesting history chapter in the book, which is how we got to here, right? How we got to just hating our fat so mm -hmm. much. And it has a lot to do with, with big business and the industry of dieting, that you're constantly being sold this thing and it's not good for you. And it makes people self-conscious. And it wasn't like this all the time. There was a period in America, you know, after the Civil War where people loved fat. There was a fat men's club where you had to be fat enough to join. It was very prestigious to have fat. Columns and magazines uh, telling women how to gain weight, not lose weight. And so we've gotten to this and that, you know, once industry got into this, this aspect of dieting, um, it just became a big echo chamber and all people heard was fat was bad and they should lose it. And now we're obsessed with just losing as much fat as we can. But really, you know, a normal amount is, is the ideal. That's when your body is, is functioning optimally. And you can even be 10 pounds above that, honestly, and still be just perfectly fine. Well, you actually illustrate that some types of fat are actually better for you than other types of fat. And I'm going, wait, hold on. There are types of fat. And I mean, I knew that at some level, but you really break it down. Can you sort of walk us through the different types of fat? Yeah, sure. So yeah, not all fat is created equal. And so we have a uh, white fat, subcutaneous fat that is right under our skin. That's the, the fat that's in your thighs and your buttock area, you know, your legs, your arms, that's subcutaneous fat. That's the safer deposit of fat. So if you're going to be fat, you're going to store fat, that's the place to store it. 
there's the more dangerous kind of fat, and that's visceral fat. That's the fat that's underneath the stomach wall. Um, and that happens, people get that more with age. Uh, and that's dangerous. It's nestled right against your internal organs. That is the type of fat that is related to type 2 diabetes and cardiac disease. And so that's the kind you, you really want to lose. There's also brown fat, and that's fat that's around your heart region, around your, your spine, um, some very much smaller quantities in our body. And that fat, you know, rather than its main function of storing calories, that is fat that actually will burn calories to produce heat in our body. And uh, swim, cold exposure, will actually turn uh, white fat or beige fat into, into brown fat. Um, and exercise actually gives you more brown fat. And there's even research now in injecting brown fat into white fat to try to, you know, burn more calories and lose weight. So all kinds of different fats. And even the, the fat pads at the bottom of your feet and hands, they're different than the other fat in your body. So fat's not all, all equal. And I, I do give an interesting story in the book about sumo wrestlers because uh, they're really obese. They have a lot of subcutaneous fat and they eat, you know, 5,000 calories a day. What is interesting is that they don't have that much visceral fat, and so they're actually quite healthy. And the reason they don't have visceral fat is because they exercise six to seven hours a day. And exercise does something interesting is that it uh, um, promotes the release of a fat hormone, adiponectin, which is released from fat. Uh, and that actually clears your blood of triglycerides and cholesterols, and it puts it into subcutaneous fat. So they're keeping their their blood very healthy, and they're storing everything into subcutaneous fat, the healthy deposit of fat. And because of that, they don't have a lot of metabolic disease. They don't have a lot of diabetes or heart disease. Uh, they're just fat. And so you can be fit but fat. And what's interesting about sumos is that once they come off this, this diet plan, this exercise regime, they can become unhealthy very quickly. And so it's the exercise that's promoting adiponectin release from fat that is actually keeping them healthy. So the fat, oddly, is keeping them healthy. What does a lay person do with this, Dr. Tara? Because everybody's ears perked up when we're like, actually, brown fat helps you burn fat. <laughs> and, yes. and you can activate it through cold exposure and through exercise. What, what do you, how do you cancel, you know, we lay people who aren't sumo wrestling anytime soon? <laughs> how do we activate this, Dr. How do we leverage this knowledge now that we have it? Yeah, so there's all, you know, exercise is really good. And I think with exercise, you have to be careful with this because um, at first, exercise actually promotes a spike in hunger. When we exercise, women have a different response to exercise than men. And I write a whole chapter yeah, about women so versus annoying. men. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And so, you know, for all women who thought they were seeing this, it's now scientifically verified. You're right. You were seeing this and that men lose weight quickly. They don't gain as much as us. And girl babies, even when they're just born, they have more fat than boy babies. So we are designed to just have more fat. And nature wants it that way. And one thing that happens is that when we exercise, women have a stronger response to it. They produce more ghrelin, which is a hormone from the stomach that produces hunger. So after, say, you know, burning off 600 calories, so a good, strong bout of exercise, women have been shown to have 33% more ghrelin in their blood compared to men. So we, we are more hungry. But what's interesting is even after we eat, and we, we tend to overcompensate more because we're more hungry, but even after we, we eat, uh, after exercise, 
we still have 25% more ghrelin in our blood. So we stay hungry for longer. So for women, it's almost better to just exercise moderately you know, and build up later as, as you really get tight with your eating regime. And exercise is the, the thing that really will increase brown fat. So, you know, it's been shown that um, like swimming for one, cold exposure um, increases brown fat. Um, running, like jogging, to, I think it was 20 miles a week, which is about three miles a day, can increase, you know, a number of hormones in, in your body and also some brown some brown fat. So it, it's interesting. There's, there's, it's kind of new. It's actually quite new, all this, this talk around brown fat. And it was just discovered recently in the last couple of years that there's also beige fat. And that's the fat that's capable of turning to brown when we do exercise. So exercise is a great component just for good health in general. Um, but I think as women, we have to build up to it slowly so we're not getting those huge hunger spikes and, and overreacting to exercise. Oh, that's so interesting. So everything is about a balance. I mean, what I'm hearing is fat is good for you and fat can be dangerous for you. And it's all about the balance. And uh, exercise can be good for you and it can also trigger, uh, honestly, an increase in body fat if you're over-exercising and not just overeating. I would argue screwing up your hormones because of over-exercising and creating that stress on your body. Is that fair? Yeah, and this is one of the problems with the dieting industry in general is that it's pushing people to hate their fat, want it off at all costs, that they're going overboard. And then it backfires because they get sick of whatever diet or whatever really strong, you know, demanding regimen that they're on. And then they come off and they give up and they don't start another diet again for another year. So really, you know, don't hate your fat. It's doing very important things in your body. You really should appreciate it. Um, you know, like you alluded to earlier, if you didn't have fat, you would have to eat the exact amount of calories you needed every second of the day to keep your body functioning. It would be impossible to work or do anything, have any other accomplishment in your life. So your fat is this buffer that is holding this so that you can have a steady flow of energy all the time. You know, your fat, your glucose, your glycogen, all of our different energy stores that I talk about in the book help us live. But, you know, at the same time, if it gets too high, you know, if you get into obesity range, that's not good either. But keep in mind, too, you can be a little bit overweight and, and be healthy. So give yourself a little bit of a break. You don't have to look like a bikini model or an athlete to be healthy. Um, th there's a range. There's a range of fatness that is okay, but the extremes are not okay. How do you counsel people to know, to you know, to tell themselves the truth about where they fall in that range? Like, what what do you recommend they do to... First of all, test your, your visceral fat. There's the easy at-home test, which is you lie in your stomach. If your stomach flattens when you lie down, you probably don't have visceral fat. But if you still have that paunch when you're lying down, then you probably have some visceral fat. And I think there's, um, you know, there's different BMI indices that we can look at. Um, I think it's, uh, what is it, normal weight is like 18 to 25 is somewhere in there. And so, you know, that's a range too. But I'd say like if you have a little bit of softness on you, it's not necessarily the end of the world. Like I said, subcutaneous fat, that, that proper storage of fat, you know, it, it can be perfectly healthy to have that fat. In fact, one thing I write about is, is genetics play a part here too. They noticed that some people with a certain genetic aberration, they were fatter um, than other people with a different variation of that gene. And they were, you know, they were thinner. They expected the thinner people to be healthy. What they found was the fatter people were healthy because again, this gene variation was causing their blood to be cleaner. Their, their fat was being very efficient. It was moving everything away from their blood, the triglycerides, the, the, the cholesterol, everything. And although they had a bit of, of um, uh, abdomen, some abdominal fat, they were overall healthier. So, you know, just, just keep that in mind, that a little bit of extra softness, it's not the end of the world as long as you're low on visceral fat and, and your panels, your blood panels are coming back okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really struggle with the BMI index and referring to that as useful to people because it does not favor the short and muscular. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's kind of an artificial read, right? I mean, it's like if you're, yeah, you're, you're right. It's a very crude measurement. The better tests are the, the ones that are harder to get, like the buoyancy tests, right? Yeah. That That's a better one. And I, I think some gyms have that once a year or something like that. Or I guess caliper test is another one, but you can't measure visceral fat with that. So buoyancy is really a good one. And, you know, what's interesting there, and I was just writing an article on this, is that, you know, there's racial differences of fat, too. And what they find is um, Asians, uh, Indians, and, and uh, certain other Asians, they actually have more fat than, than it looks like. They look very lean, but they find they actually have some visceral fat in them. And so their buoyancy tests, they show more fat. And so it, it's just very interesting. Fat's very tricky. I think what's brilliant about your book is that, as I said, you give us a new pre- a new appreciation for how to view this organ, this endocrine organ, and the role that it plays. But also, you talk to us about how to manage it in ways that I don't think the diet industry, so to speak, you know, collective eye roll, I don't think they talk about. So, so I want to talk about that for a moment. You discuss the link between something we've been talking a great deal about on this show, and that is bacteria and the microbiome and the role that that plays in fat and fat storage. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, there's not one thing I talk about that's the answer to everything. You have to do almost all of it if you want to, I think, stay as healthy as you can be. And so the middle section of the book is really about all kinds of odd ways we accumulate fat that we never thought about. So everyone thinks, well, people overeat and they're lazy and that's why they're getting really fat. That's part of it. And for a certain amount of people, that's absolutely their biggest problem. But that if, if you were someone like me who I eat moderately and yet I seem to be getting fatter than other people, that's where you got to get really smart and educate yourself. So I went down this path to learn all the ways we get fat. What is causing fat? And one of those things I write about are bacteria and viruses. And so we have bacteria in our gut and they actually help us digest our food. They can take very tough polysaccharides, you know, fibers and digest them more than we could do on our own. Certain types of bacteria um, will absorb more glucose, more calories out of our food than other types of bacteria that will allow more of it to pass. And so depending on your distribution, you could be getting more or less calories out of your food. Hmm. So even though a box of Cheerios will say 100 calories per serving, that's not true for everyone. Some people could be getting 130 calories out of it. Some people could be getting 80 calories out of it. And what's interesting is they find people who eat more fruits and vegetables, they tilt their microbiome because it's not static, your microbiome. You can change the composition Mm -hmm. over time. And so people who have more fruits and vegetables have a bacterial profile that is aligned more with a, a leaner body type. So they have more of these bacteria that do not absorb as many calories out of the food. It's just a different bacterial distribution. And they have more diversity of gut flora. And then people who eat a lot of processed foods, you know, if they have the other kind of uh, bacteria distribution, which is the kind that extracts more out of food. So in a way, fat begets fat and thin begets thin. And uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg is what's causing what. And I I think it's because of what we eat, our bacteria changes to take, you know, advantage of what that is or work the most with it. And so your diet can change your bacteria. You know, you can get to thin beginning thin where you're, you know, eating fruits and vegetables. Not only are you getting fewer calories, um, but you're also absorbing less of those calories through your gut bacteria and passing more as waste. 
I think that this is such a critical connection for people to make. This makes me think of those listeners who have tried the paleo diet or even a ketogenic diet, and it's not working for them. In many cases, it's because they let go of, you know, they they minimize too much fiber. And so they're not absorbing the food the way somebody else is and getting amazing results. And I, I don't I don't know if you even want to comment on that, but I just think that what you just said is huge. Like we can both eat a piece of bacon and I might absorb many more calories from that experience than you. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. And yeah, I do talk a lot about individualization of diets because we're all designed differently. And, and there's research coming out of different institutions now that show people don't have the same response to food along across the board. So there's not one diet that fits all. There are people who can eat you know, a cupcake or a muffin and they don't get this huge blood sugar spike. And then there's someone else who just has a crumb and they're getting a blood sugar spike. So when you see these people that can eat what they want and they don't get fat, there are reasons for that. It's 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 likely genetic. It's based on gender. It's based on their microbiome on a number of things. And so when I went to you know really set out to lose weight, I kept a very detailed log of what I ate every day, and I was able to fine tune my diet. And I noticed that you know salads worked remarkably. So I would have a you know a big salad in the middle of the day, and that was you know probably my biggest meal. And I would lose, I could lose weight daily on that. But if I even had a sandwich or something else for lunch, I wouldn't lose as much weight. Pizza, I would gain weight, no doubt. Even if it was the same amount of calories, like a small piece of pizza compared to what a salad would be. So, and I think it's because, you know, it's passing more as waste. It's not absorbing as much through the gut. So I think if people take a detailed log, they will start to see also what really works for them instead of just sticking with paleo or some other diet they've just read the book on. Yeah, I love that you say that you can eat chocolate and you're fine, but if you eat a cookie, you'll gain a pound instantly. <laughs> That's right. And that was one of the, the big um, ahas in keeping a diet log is there were foods I could get away with, you know, because I have a sweet tooth. And so for me, diets are hard. If I never get to have sugar, I tend to come off and be unhappy. And then I, I go into Never Neverland and I'm off the diet for a while when I come off. Um, but I noticed like, you know, a vanilla latte, something was just sugar, but no flour. I actually, my body wouldn't stop losing weight. It would continue. And I wasn't eating like pounds of candy, but, you know, a little bit of candy here and there. And it wouldn't stop me from losing weight. So hopefully people can find that thing that works for them because if not, it's hard to stay in a diet. A diet has to work for you psychologically. It has to be something you can stay on for a long time. Your body has to be responding to it. So it has to work biologically. And it has to work for your lifestyle too, right? So so what do you need? What, what's going on in your life? And, and does it resonate with, with your travel schedule, with your kids, with anything else you might have going on? And so important that we find uh, ways to, to cheat every once in a while so that we can really just feel satiated for the long term. Yeah, and it's not a sexy message and it's not a profitable message, but at the end of the day, you have to be your own detective and you have to do what works for you and you have to do the work to figure out what's actually working for you. And we hate that because it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure if I had one of these, uh, take these one, two, three steps and lose weight books, I would have sold a lot more. <laughs> but I don't know, I'm a, a scientist and I feel like I need to stay close to the truth. And so that's what I did. But it, it's a good education. I made this into a fun read so that it's entertaining. It's not just a science textbook. Um, I tell the story of fat through the stories of patients and what they've gone mm -hmm. through, the researchers and how they, they came up on their big discoveries. And so I'm hoping it's a good, easy read for people. 
Dr. Tara, one of those topics that you talk a lot about that I've been getting a lot of questions about, and that is what happens as we age. So you actually have a whole section on aging, but then you very specifically discuss menopause and you don't limit it to just women. You also talk about the hormonal changes in men as we age. I'd love to talk about that for a moment because so many weird, obnoxious things happen with our bodies as we age and we start accumulating fat for reasons we don't understand because we're doing the same thing, but getting a different result. And we're accumulating it in ways and places that we're just like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) So tell us what is actually happening that makes it so much harder to to burn up that fat and store more for those people who are at that point in their life right now. Yeah. And so as we age, we produce less fat burning hormones. Our estrogen goes down, growth hormone goes down, testosterone goes down. And, and women and men both have testosterone. Naturally, women have more testosterone floating in, around in their body than estrogen often. And so, you know, it makes, and as testosterone is a profound fat burner. And, and we just, we both lose it. Both sexes lose it with age. And so we start to accumulate fat. And I covered the re- uh, research of one person who, who studied male runners. And he noticed, he, he studied them over time, over like a 10-year period. And he knows for all of them that no matter what, they started getting more fat with age. If they were eating the same, doing the same amount of exercise, fat was accumulating. And he finally determined that if if a runner wants to stay thin, they have to add 1.4 miles of running per week to their regimen every year. So if they were running 30 miles a week, say, say, or let's say 10 miles a week when they were 30, they had, by the time they were 40, they had to be running about 24 miles a week if they wanted to fit into the same clothing. So that's how strong that fat gain propensity is as we age. And, you know, it's happening both in women and men. I interviewed a few people in my book who, you know, they, they got to that point exactly like you said. It's like, what the heck? You know, I got to this age and suddenly fat's everywhere. Um, you know, I don't feel like it's deserved and, and what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's more to it even than hormones. I mean, we lose some of our lean tissue, so our, our metabolism's slowing a little bit for that. And, we, of course, lifestyle-wise, we get into more sedentary lives. We get a lot of pressure, you know, in our life. And so, like, there's more cortisol. There's just more things going on. So, really, you just have to work harder with age. And, you know, that's, a, I guess, a pretty fundamental message. But you might not realize how much harder you have to work with age. You really do have to increase your exercise. And the good thing about doing that is that, Exercise does increase our levels of those fat-burning hormones, and it's been shown that you know doing strength-building exercises increases growth hormone and testosterone. And so there are natural ways to bring up hormone levels too. Uh, I did write about a couple of people who tried hormone replacement therapy, and they were really happy with it. You know, there are risks for doing hormone replacement therapy, and you do really have to carefully talk about it with the doctor about the risk-benefit um, profile of that and see if it's right for you. The two people I had spoken to, they, you know, and the doctor I spoke to about it too, um, they, they were, uh, you know, they used it as a, an interim step. So they used it for people who had gotten so far down the line, they just felt like they couldn't lose weight. They put people on it temporarily, have them exercise more because when you're taking these hormones, you feel more, um, more power, you feel more um, invigorated, and, and it helped them get their life together, and then they could taper off the hormones. But again, I've, I've not started taking any. Um, I'm still opting for the natural way. I exercise, I, I do running, and I, I lift weights and things like that. And I've noticed it makes a difference. And, you know, just to touch on things we've talked about earlier is that it does increase amounts of brown fat. It does increase the amounts of lean tissue we have. It does increase adiponectin levels, which help clear your blood. So lots of benefits to exercise. You know, another thing that increases that is, you know, intermittent fasting, which I talk about in the book. And that's 
I, I don't do anything super hardcore. I, you just stop eating a little bit around nighttime, and that's also thought to increase the uh, release of growth hormones. And exercise and just avoiding night eating, you can get some of these hormones uh, back in line. I love that you're cautious about sharing your own protocol because you're very, very clear that, you know, we're all different, but there is good news, right? There are things that work across the spectrum too. And I try to bring that to in the close of the book because I know this is a little dizzying for people. There's a lot of information in the book. And so what, what do you do with it now? And although you have to individualize your diet, you have to pay attention, keep logs. Like across the board, honestly, eating salads will, is going to work for anybody, whatever your genetic profile, age, hormone level. That is one great way, you know, to, to start tilting your microbiome and losing weight. It just add a lot more fibrous vegetables and fruits and things to, to your diet. You know, the other one I think is, is truly avoiding night eating. I think that works, you know, more or less across the spectrum as well. And then adding exercise slowly is another one. Playing with hormones, just be smart about it. Now that you're educated about fat after you get, you know, for, through the first 10 chapters or so, you know, you know a lot more now. And so you can you start to use hormones. Everyone's talking about insulin. You know, I think the last three years the diet industries or diet book industry has been all around insulin. But what about growth hormone? What about testosterone? There's ways we can we can alter those too, and they are great fat busters. So you know, just keeping to a, you know a, a good kind of fibrous diet and then exercising and and watching the interval of time you eat instead of eating all day. And maybe get some sleep. Does that sound about right? <laughs> oh, yeah, sleep. When I talked about sleep, that's another good one because that's the growth hormone release. Um, and sleep, also, if you don't get enough sleep, you get more ghrelin. So you get more hungry overall and you're given more to eating sweets. So, yes, I didn't touch on sleep, but thank you for bringing it up. That's an important component, too. Well, and I want to just highlight something that I sort of glossed over and I'm not really doing it justice. And that is that you mentioned that as you age, your, your cortisol tends to increase and, and frankly, your stressors in life increase and, and exercise is also a stressor, just PS everyone. But can you use our last minute together to just explain the relationship between stress and fat as you understand it? Because so many of us have gone through stressful periods and, and so on and so forth in our lives. And we found that we have had weight gain that really can't be attributed to anything else other than that experience. Are we making that up? Are we justifying it? Or is that real? Yeah, it it's, could be real for a number of reasons. So one thing you touched on was cortisol. And then high cortisol levels are associated with more abdominal fat. But the other thing that is associated with this is the psychology of eating and stress. And I actually have a whole chapter on the psychology of, of dieting and stress in the book. So you know, self-control is kind of like a muscle. And, and when we're going under um, stressful times, it's much harder to exert self-control. In fact, during times of great recession or economic panic, candy sales soar, right? People don't want to restrain. They're already stressed out. And, and, and when we restrain ourselves or stay on a regimen, it's actually another stress factor. So if you're already in a very stressful situation, it's actually hard to start a diet or stay on a diet at that time. And uh, there's day-to-day stress we all have. We all sit in traffic and we're stressed out. We go to our work and we're stressed out. Kids will stress us out. But then like at, at particular stressful times, it, it's it's tough. And there's lots of research that shows that, that when people have external stress in their lives, like they, they test people, they put them in a room with lots of noise, they can't apply themselves to things like solving puzzles or, or doing a hand grip, you know, holding a hand grip for a long time. So that that's shown more or less that stress, you know, it, it debilitates our self-control, um, our willingness to, to take on you know, more restraint type, type exercises. Now, the good news with all of this is that because it is a muscle self-control, you can exercise it and you can build it up in small steps. So there's research that show that when they have people like stop swearing for two weeks or, or control their posture for two weeks, 
they get better at taking on bigger tasks after that. So they, they can give them, you know, harder tasks after that, like, uh, you know, do the hand grip exercise, hold it for a certain amount of time, or add on more exercises after that. And they're better at doing it if they've built up their self-control over time like that. And the other important thing to know is that you can't exert yourself all the time, all right? We need to come off whatever regimen we're on because self-control, like a muscle, also gets worn out. So we need breaks in there. The key thing is when you take a break, don't fall off the wagon. And women are, uh, they have a, a risk of dichotomous thinking. So they, they, there's more women than men that have this thing called dichotomous thinking. And that's where if I didn't win, I failed. If I didn't get an A on my test, if I got a B, I'm a total failure and it's time to give up. And I, I talk to doctors who work with women, the people at weight loss clinics who work with, and, and they notice this too, that women, they respond differently to these failures. Personal trainers will mention this too, that when women make a mistake or they go off, they really are hard on themselves. They have this big guilt they have, they, they go through where men are like, yeah, I had a beer, so what? I'm back. <laughs> they really, they, they bounce back much more. So that dichotomous thinking, which is, is something that's more common in women, you know, we have to watch because you will have to come off your diet here or there. It's important too because you need some breaks, but then forgive yourself, get back on, keep going for the long haul. Because one thing we, we haven't gotten into is that when you do lose weight, you know, say 10% of your weight or more, you do lose levels of leptin. Fat produces a hormone called leptin. And when we lose fat, we lose leptin. When we lose leptin, our metabolism goes lower. So we're about 25% uh, more efficient at using our calories when times of exercise, 10% at rest. And this lasts for a long time. It's been studied up to six years. It might be permanent that your, your metabolism is a little bit lower after losing some fat. You have to stay with your diet for the long haul, not just for six months to fit into a bathing suit, but really for years if you want to maintain that weight loss. So make sure you get on a diet that works for you. Your body responds psychologically. You like it. It has the foods you want, and it, it works well with your lifestyle. And allow yourself to come off every now and then. You're going to have to. But then forgive yourself. Get back on. Self-control is a muscle. And keep exerting it. Give it a break here and there and keep going. Like the word diet triggers so many different emotional responses for so many people. And I like to position it as what, what, what is the lifestyle plan that you want? And, <laughs> and what foods fall into that lifestyle plan for you? And is this sustainable for you? If it feels like a diet to you, I would argue that it's not sustainable. And so really, at the end of the day, don't we need to be looking for foods that support us feeling the way we want to feel like <laughs> in in every way physically mentally etc like that's the challenge right the lifelong challenge i must say yeah and that's exactly what i mean when i say a diet has to work for you psychologically is this something you can stay on for a long time because honestly i agree with you paleo is not right for me mm. i i couldn't stay on if it's too restrictive and i've got to buy all these foods and i got to cook i mean i don't even have a lifestyle that supports that kind of investment of time <laughs> and so it doesn't work for me it might be a great diet and I might respond to it biologically, but for my life and my psychology, that diet won't work. And, you know, I, I do this big faux pas, you know, in the book, as I talk about, I eat sugar once in a while. And I'm sure you you and all your <laughs> listeners are aware, you know, of all the volumes of books that have been written against sugar. It's poison. It's toxic. It's, it's blamed for everything on the planet right now. And, uh, you know, for me, hey, that for psychologically, if I don't get to have some once in a while, I'll come off that diet. I'll come off that that eating plan. And I'll go on and then I'll have dichotomous thinking and feel like I failed and then it'll throw me into this big, you know, this big loop. Yeah. Yes. And so very luckily I have found that small bits of chocolate here and there don't really make me gain weight. And so that's what I do. And, and study it for yourself. Forget what everyone else is selling you. Just focus on yourself. Take a log. Figure out what you need and you'll make it work. There'll be some, you know, trial and error period. 
but keep a log, keep your exercise, and you'll start to notice what activities, what foods are correlating with weight loss for you. Dr. Tara, thank you so much for this mini education. And for those who want to deep dive with me into the secret life of fat and understand it as an organ, then you should check out the link to Dr. Tara's book. Dr. Tara, thank you so much. Thanks, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.